The Anton Savage Show Sunday. Brought to you by PwC. Combining talent and technology, we're hardwired to find solutions. On News Talk. So today, let's start off with some of the headlines from the front pages of the Sunday newspapers. I'm going to start off today with the Mail on Sunday. Um, there is a glorious picture of the brave food courier, uh, Cario Benico. He is the gentleman uh, who bravely tackled the knife man who was um, involved in that attack in Dublin city centre a number of weeks ago. And he has arrived back home in Brazil and he's joined by his family, uh, his son and his wife and daughter. And it's a beautiful picture. He looks very, very happy. And he was in a position to make that journey because of a whopping €369,000, which was raised uh, by GoFundMe uh, for his efforts. Another story on the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday is drivers hit with false NCT times on website. And this is a big analysis they've done of how long it actually takes between applying for an NCT test and actually getting one. And uh, they are very far removed from the reality that you you might actually experience. On the front page then of the Business Post, a big headline uh, on the top saying the X-Files, how Musk's new rules allow hate to flourish. And it's an investigation by the Business Post team um, of leaked documents, which un- un- unravel, I guess, uh, what's happened uh, in the, the last year since Elon Musk has taken over at Twitter. And Don McNamee from the Business Post is going to be joining me shortly to take us through what that investigation says. Um, also on the front page of uh, the Business Post, Waste Tycoon Waters agreed to a deal to buy Buswell's Hotel. This is the iconic hotel just beside Dole Aaron, which many people will be familiar with changing hands. Moving to the Sunday Times then, uh, we'll get Toscan de Plantier killer, the Gardaí, tell her son, obviously coming up to the anniversary of that tragic death. The son of Sophie Toscan de Plantier has been told by Gardaí that they are confident of catching the killer. A sub-headline on the Sunday Times this morning is Ryan urges US to pull weight on fossil fuels. This is Eamon Ryan, the Environment Minister, asking for America to play a greater role in the transition away from fossil fuels. And finally, the Sunday Independent doctor refused to attend A&E as girl lay dying. This is a story about an unpublished review which was given to the family um, of the, the, the girl who passed away. And um, there's also an interview inside that paper with the health minister, uh, Stephen Donnelly. Little for cheer, I'm afraid, on the front page of the Sunday Independent. But there is a lovely picture of Antishak Leo Vradkar, who's enjoying... Um, a gospel choir rendition uh, recital, a picture taken by Jerry Mooney, um, and it's a lovely one. Well, as I mentioned in those news headlines, the Business Post have um, done an investigation into how Elon Musk has changed things at Twitter and how the new rules that he has put in place have allowed hate to flourish in that platform. And joining me on the line now is Donald McNamee. Donald, thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me, Mandy. Donald, you might just take us through the investigation itself. What, what, what did you set out to do and what did you discover? Yeah, it's a pretty mad uh, and sort of fascinating situation. Um, I think everyone who uses X or Twitter um, sort of knows how it's changed from a front end kind of um, perspective. You know, how what you see 
is quite different um, in lots of cases than what you used to see on your timeline. Um, the the documents we've seen kind of show why and how that's the case. Um, I suppose they show kind of the, how the, the sausage is made behind the scenes, so to speak. Um, and it's all to do with new policies that have been implemented in the last six months or so around how kind of abusive and hateful content is moderated. Um, and the, the, the new rules that have been put in place, which are, I say, significantly more lenient um, than the previous kind of um, the previous rules that, that were there. Mm. And we might talk a little bit about the posts that are now allowed. But before we do that, just um, what did you discover then? So how did the rules shift and change when he came in? Well, when content moderators, that's the trust and safety staff that, that sort of work to, to police um, uh, content on, on X. Yeah, because um, he got rid of a lot of those as soon as he came in, didn't he? That was one of the big it, things that he shelved. Exactly. And he also lost a few um, really senior people. Um, Joel Roth uh, left. He was a, a trust and safety head. Um, and that function now, trust and safety, is is directly under Musk and Lindy Acarino, the, the chief executive. Um but the, the the changes he's implemented sort of they've they, they've trickled down to the individual levels and um, being made by content moderators on different categories of abusive and hateful speech and um it, it's it's a really complicated area like it's a really difficult thing to be a content moderator obviously but um but basically the documents we've seen show how po- the policies have changed and and in particular how the user or the account that posts certain types of, of, of materials that, that will be deemed abusive or hateful or that violate access policies. And the new policies make it very difficult for a moderator to sort of penalise them or to take action against the actual account. Um, so, you know, the, these types of accounts or these types of users are are, are allowed to, to proliferate in a way that maybe they weren't um, they weren't so much before. Yeah, and it's, look, it's definitely what's contributing to making Twitter or X, as we now know it, in, in quite an unpleasant place. Maybe just give us some examples of things that now filter through that wouldn't have got past, wouldn't have got through in the past. Yeah, so th- these are pretty sort of um, stark examples. Um, and again, as I say, content moderation is a really, really difficult job. Um, but the, some of the posts that that would have previously been been subject to more robust enforcement um, are posts that deny violent events, such as such as the Holocaust. Posts that revert to, to specific slurs for for black, white, or gay people. Um, the one example we saw was uh, of a post that's no longer subject to the same level of enforcement action was was a um, a post that sort of harasses another user by by adding them and sending them a picture of Hitler. Um, and posts that mention mass murder are also um, they no longer um, result in the suspension of the account that that is behind them. So there's 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 really um, specific uh, examples to show why um, a lot of these posts are, are, are I suppose are, and a lot of these accounts are, are remaining on on X or Twitter in a way that as I said they, they weren't so much um, they weren't so much before when when the policies were a little bit more exacting. Absolutely. Well Donald, the investigation is very thorough and if you want to read about it, it is in the business post today. And of course, as you mentioned, all of this having a significant effect as well on the revenues uh, inside X, Bloomberg reporting that uh, this week that X advertising revenue in twenty twenty three expected to drop by or sorry to be one point five billion lower than they were last year. But yet, Donald, it's a fascinating read and thank you very much for taking the time to be with us this morning.
Now, I'm joined here in studio by Fergal O'Rourke, who's recently retired as managing partner of PwC, Brianna Parkins, journalist and columnist with the Irish Times, and Aideen Finnegan, podcast producer with the Irish Times. Um, and they're all going to go through the morning newspapers with me. I'm going to start off with you, Fergal. First, before we get into the newspapers, your first non-PwC Christmas for years. How are you finding it? That's great. I'll get my Christmas shopping done a bit early this year. Very good, yeah. In fact, hopefully after this, I'll, I'll go into town and do a bit. Uh, That's six days before most men start the shopping. That's stereotypical. It is, yeah. Yeah, sorry about that. I couldn't help it. Um, we want to start off with a bit of politics, Fergal. Yeah. You're no stranger to uh, in life. Your family obviously involved in it for years. Uh, and the first story you want to look at today was a story by John Drennan that's in the Irish Mail on Sunday. Coalition TDs plead for early election to take out Shuk Sinn Féin. I don't know if turkeys and Christmas come to mind. Well, you know, for, for political nerdy observers like myself and yourself, Mandy, uh, 2024 will be the year of a general election. I mean, in theory, the government can go to early 2025, but I don't think anybody expects an election in January or February. So what John Drennan's article is really looking at is what date and there's a, some TDs are saying, why not go the same day as the referendum in March or why not go the same day as the local elections in June? Now, the only other alternative in the year is probably have a budget and go straight after the budget. So you pay your money, you take your choice. And there seems to be, and I limit this to backbenchers who tend to run on hither and thither, depending on the latest opinion poll. You know, th- There seems to be this perception Sinn Féin have stalled slightly in the mm. polls and maybe now is a good time to get them where they're slightly uh, uh, stalled in the polls. I'm, I'm not sure. I suspect the ca- there'll be wiser and saner heads around the cabinet who will, who will debate this a lot longer. I'm not sure myself. I mean, y- your, your previous boss, Bertie Hearn, used to love going the full five years. Uh, if I was putting money on it, I'd probably say the date of the local elections because people don't like elections being called when they're not needed. And mm. I think if, if, you know, the government decide to go to the country to be able to say, well, it's on the same day as a referendum or the same day as the local elections, I think gives them a bit of credibility. Mm. I, personally, I think we will see an election in the first six months of Canada 2024. Brianna, I might bring you in here. Just that, that point that Ferg was making, D. John makes in the piece about Sinn Féin are on a downward trajectory. I mean, they've stalled in the, the opinion polls. They've had a few weeks of difficult issues uh, like immigration, maybe like the law and order things. What's your feeling um, on their position? I know Shane Coleman has been writing about this. Have you been looking yeah. at that? So Shane Coleman talks about the backslide from the heights of the 36% polling down to 31% polling. Again, not a massive uh, you know, kind of indication that they're on the chopping block anytime soon. Still quite decent numbers there. Um, but it does seem like backbenches do feel like there's blood in the water and they are getting a bit nervy and it sort of seems like now is the time. But it's interesting because, you know, Sinn Féin, like any left-wing party, has to grapple with immigration because you've got sort of two sort of adherents in left-wing parties. You've got people who are left-wing ideologically and you've got the working class sort of maybe formerly trade union aligned um, working people who are also going to feel the effects of immigration and also going to live at sort of the coalface of multiculturalism because they're living in the kind of suburbs that people move to when they immigrate um, because they're cheaper, there's schools around, all those kinds of things, and they're the ones having to share resources. So Sinn Féin's really going to have to play this immigration debate out. I know that Mary Lou's done an interview with the uh, the journal yesterday, and she said, like, she's really clarified, look, we, don't, we do not advocate for an open border policy. It's going to be really interesting watching them walk that tightrope for the next few months because it's, it's incredibly hard to balance. I mean, Labour in Australia, Labour in the UK have had to deal with it as well. And this is really unprecedented 
sort of a space for Ireland. This is the first time Ireland's ever sort of had to deal with a, a refugee crisis and mm. kind of ask questions about themselves as a nation. You know, we don't want to be the hard line, but sometimes the hard line is required. Mm. Aideen, it's all getting very um, mixed up, isn't it, for Sinn Féin with those immigration policies. They can't talk about that without, you know, their housing has been a big issue that they've focused on, health as well. But they've kind of, as Brianna said, they've they've kind of been not sitting on the fence, but treading a, a soft line. Dithering, on I think, is what they've kind of been accused of. And I suppose the problem, or, you know, analysts will kind of point out that Sinn Féin is often accused of being a populist party. They haven't actually taken the populist line on immigration. And there, um, I suppose, are fears that perhaps that might uh, come back to bite them in terms of them losing support to the hard right or to alt-right people, people who are, you know, sort of um, looking to campaign on an immigration platform. The likes of Malachi Steenson, he's a solicitor mm. and he has been at a lot of these rallies and uh, that, that some of that uh, might go that direction. And I suppose as Sinn Féin tried to move to the centre, that is one of the really difficult lines that they have to, to tread. Um, and, and, you know, the other thing is that Sinn Féin's, the, the analysts, analysts say that, you know, they do great on things like housing. When, when there's a housing and homelessness, when that's top of the agenda, that's where they excel. Um, and I suppose they can try and link it back to that. I mean, that is, you know, the, the, the lack of infrastructure we have, you know, it... it I guess with with immigration, a lot of people use it as as a means to 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 get into power. Uh, Desi Ellis from Sinn Fein was actually saying that 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 is the the platform that people will try and get themselves in. They have no, they don't care about local communities. They don't care about housing. Really, it's just about a, a means for them. And I guess this whole talk about we need an honest, and I say an honest conversation in inverted commas about immigration um, is, is something that they can wield an awful lot. Yeah, and you wanted to come in there, Fergal, but before you do, like, I mean, we're having this conversation whilst there are people who are here looking for international protection who can't get access to housing. And this morning we have that awful news story about more than 60 migrants presumed dead after a boat has sunk off the coast of Libya. That's the reality of the people who are trying to come here and we're having two separate conversations mm-hmm. about it, you know. Virgil, did you want to come no, in I on just, that I, I, I was going to say just the, the parallels between the UK and Ireland over the next 12 months will be quite clear. A government that's been in power for a long time, mm. an opposition who is waiting to come into power, who doesn't want to make any mistakes and therefore probably like a soccer team that's 2-0 up with 10 or 15 minutes to go, just wants to hold on to the lead, where immigration will be a big issue and um, where the government will try and almost goad the opposition into making mistakes. I think this could be an angry year for electoral politics in the UK and in Ireland but if we're not ha- careful. Yeah, if we're not careful and it could go down that road, but we're not it's not as um, divisive politically an issue yet here. Not yet, although the, the riots in Dublin uh, gave us an example of what can happen, can happen very, very quickly. And can you imagine if that riot had taken place in the context of an election campaign? Yeah, uh, It true. could completely upend and change the election campaign. So I, I think we have a good society here, but I would be worried that this election uh, that we will face here in 2024 could be one of the most divisive mm. if we're not careful. I want to go back to the politics of this with you for a second, Fergal. Uh, who wants this? Because in this article by John Drennan, it seems to be Fine Gael who are kind of pushing something earlier, maybe to a spring 2024. And I have heard from a lot of people that what, uh, and this could be absolute rubbish, uh, but what Leo Varadkar fears mostly is that 
you know, Sinn Féin will be on a an upward trajectory coming out of the local elections mm-hmm. and that to try and, you know, bypass that, they will go early. But Fianna Fáil don't seem to be as um, anxious to hit the polls. What do you think about Micheál Martin and, and what he's planning to do over the next couple of months? Yeah, you know yourself, Mandy, this can ebb and flow week to week, depending on what the latest opinion poll tells. The local elections in 2019 were very poor for Sinn Féin when you go back and look at them. Um, so no matter what happens in the local elections, they will be the winner. They will make the most gains simply because they're coming from a lower base. They would have a lot more potential candidates for the general election where they don't appear to have them right now as we stand here in, in a lot of constituencies looking for second and in some cases looking for third seats. So you could see the logic if you were a government TD saying, why not cut them off at the pass? But then there will be others. And, and you know, again, reading the, 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 the papers, Fianna Fáil team do this. No, you, you go as long as possible. And that probably is ingrained in the Fianna Fáil DNA from, from Bertie's time and that where you run your five years and you go as far as you can. But, uh, you know, there are, as I said earlier, saner heads around Cabinet mm. who, will, who will look at all this and try and say, what is the optimum moment for us? But I, I still personally think it probably is June yeah. of 2024. Maybe the temptation to wait for another budget as well. Yeah, which is, yeah. People won't feel it in their pockets until that's January, true. which... That's true, that's true. Yeah. Brianna, um, actually, this isn't from the Sunday newspaper, but yesterday you were writing about people's profile in a kind of, um, in within companies and all these new <laughs> psychometrical tests that we have to take now. Um, you didn't touch on the world of politics, but perhaps <laughs> something we should start looking at as well as like, What's your policy position? Like, actually, what type of personality are you? Because I don't think we want to know. Maybe not. <laughs> Maybe you're right. And I've had this discussion with with friends uh, when I used to work in the press gallery in, in Canberra, Australia, and we sort of came up with the idea that a lot of politicians and also journalists, um, there's something broken deeply within us, and that's why we look Moving for approval. Moving swiftly along. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, do, are we narcissists or do we just have narcissistic traits? Yeah, I think it takes a, a particular type of person to be, to have the fortitude to be a politician. Yeah, well, it certainly. Nowadays. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are people now, uh, I, I think it's it's going to be, I, I come from Athlone, uh, an average Irish town, you know, talking to my family back home, they're saying all the parties are finding difficulties getting candidates to mm. run the local elections uh, in, uh, in next summer. Whereas beforehand, you know, the local solicitor, or the local auctioneer, the local teacher would have put their hands up. I, I think we're seeing a potentially an ebbing of, of candidates around the country. Well, we were just speaking uh, there to, to Don McNamee from the Business Post about, you know, Twitter and how divisive that all is now and, and, and politicians, you know, like journalists, they can't they can't any longer just be one thing. They need to be on social media, they need to be present. So yeah, but maybe we'll we'll just leave their psychometric <laughs> testing for now. I just wanna before I leave politics completely, I just wanna look at two other stories that were in the papers today. One was about the government jet um Aileen, do you have a look at this one yes, for us? So apparently it's down again. I mean Everyone loves a good government jet story and here we are again. (laughs) So apparently Simon Harris was due to um, head to uh, Brussels on the 8th of December and he was to take the the government Learjet from Casement Aerodrome in Beldonnell and a last minute problem meant that they couldn't. There was no other um, option available. So he had to leave by car and, you know, this, uh, this comes around again and again. It's 20 years old. It obviously needs replacing, but it's this kind of political hot potato because you just have this image of politicians on a Learjet. 
does it have to be a Learjet? Does, I mean, can well, this is an interesting point, Fergal. Like, I've stood on many a tarmac where the previous jet broke down <laughs> and had to had to get back. And like, actually, from like, it's a hard one, as Aideen said. Like, the government have to invest. They've got to be on the world stage. It's not just ferrying ministers around either. It does other good work for citizens of Ireland. Um, but it's one that you can never say it's like we're spending 40 million on a jet. Well, you got closer to the government jet than I did, Mandy. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> if you were on the tarmac very, looking. I was working very hard. Yeah, I mean, you know, if this were a business, a, a, a global business, and there are a couple of global businesses headquartered on it that have their own jets because it's easier to get uh, executives from A to B to C to D and back home than do this. So, you know, if you were looking at it logically and you were looking at it coldly and this were a business that you owned, a, a multinational business, you would say, of course you'd do it. But the optics are horrendous. And we'll talk later on about another story about the re- doing up the doll library, uh, the same thing. If, if people, ordinary people would say, ah, they, why can't they queue up in Terminal 1 or 2 like the yeah. rest of us? But you could explain it. You could you say, could we can, we'll spend this money now and we won't have to charge our last minute flights at, you know, yeah. overinflated mm. costs to the taxpayer. I love that they talked about, oh, we have a contingency plan. And in my head, I just had this like picture of an age, like, frantically Googling Skyscanner. <laughs> no, they go and they hire another private jet. And yeah. apparently one was, the, according to the article, a similar jet costs around five grand to hire by the hour. So this breakdown is costing us. But also just jump on that Ryanair flight there. Go on. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I, I can tell you even like, so I've done all of that. I've, I've literally been standing on a tarmac <laughs> when the thing is broken down. Part of the delegation has been siphoned off onto flights to get back because the Taoiseach has to get home and so do ministers, but you don't. Then you have to get on to the broken aeroplane a couple of days later and as somebody who's not a good flyer, anyway, that's not oh. a good experience. <laughs> oh, no. But like we're sticking to the optics thing, there was, there was another story in the Sunday Business Post today. State pays 11 million for Washington Mansion to house the ambassador and it's also talking about the US State Department and here and what they're doing to... Um, their own embassy. So um, maybe, Aileen, would you just take us through that, what they're doing? Because it is that optics thing again. mm. It has to happen. But what does it look like? So the the Irish government has paid 11 million euro for um, a very expensive home in Washington, D.C. for to be the the residence for the Irish ambassador. Now, now I have to say, there's a picture here of uh, Geraldine Byrne-Nason. It's not her house. They're no. not buying it for her. It's for the ambassador. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. But it, it has these uh, gas looking, you know, ionic columns and it has the effect of looking extremely opulent. And in fact, it, you know, it's a nine bedroom property. It includes two dining rooms, a breakfast room, a library, two sitting rooms, a decadent family room. It's described as a swimming pool, cinema room, wine cellar and separate living quarters for household staff originally built in 2008. And, you know... Uh, it's it's on it's on the ambassador's row, so it's right at the heart of where I suppose you need to be when you want to be rubbing shoulders with all the other um, hoi polloi or the, the, what what is it Donald Trump calls it in the swamp. Anyway, we'll leave that there. <laughs> but it, it and there's also a story as well this morning about the government's um, or the apparent vanity project of the Thaw Library as well and how much has been spent. So there's this huge flurry of stories on how much it's it, Christmas. It's <laughs> <the task laughs> happy, and it you know it, it it is about optics. But I guess I mean I have never worked on the diplomat circuit. I have never you know been involved in foreign affairs. I'm not really sure 
whether it is just optics that you can't live in a more meagre house in Washington or whether it's actually really worth it to be networking and, you know, going to the same supermarket as your, you know. Brianna, can you live more frugally in the, in the United States well, than this? Look, it, it was a bargain because they're like, look, we got it down from 18 million, 17 million. We got down to 11. It's a deal. Uh, it's 15,000 square foot in a really, really exclusive um, embassy enclave in Washington. So by their metrics, they're like, look, it was on sale. Yeah. We saved money. Um, but I think, you know, if you look at Ambassador, any houses in Ireland, that's their primary living residence, but it also usually has function rooms where you hold, you know, the state banquet kind of equivalents and you hold events and you're doing all that soft power stuff. So you do need to have space for that, which is why it comes with a wine cellar. I'll give them that. Mm-hmm. But it comes with a swimming pool, which to me is going to right. be costly then to maintain unless you fill it in with sand. Eamon Ryan may not be happy about no. this. But, but yeah. seriously, there is a serious part of this, Virgil. You're obviously, um, you know, worked hugely with multinationals who are based here in Ireland. And Brianna spoke about soft power. Yeah. This is an important part of our economy. Well, a bit like you in the government jet. I was in the previous uh, residence <laughs> or the, uh, the current residence in Washington. And if I can go off in a rift that I get annoyed at every March where people come out and say, oh, it's terrible the way all the Irish ministers leave to go around the world on St. Patrick's Day. Actually, that's the best week of the year for Ireland in terms of our soft power and extending our soft power. Is it though? Do you see that oh, 100%. Percent. I mean, yeah. like, I, I, you know, I would have spent every Patrick's week myself in the US knocking on doors of companies who are in Ireland are going to come to Ireland. The goodwill around Ireland is incredible. And I was fortunate enough twice to get to the White House gig. Uh, and, you know, I remember uh, a senior executive in a US multinational saying to me, and I heard I was going to it, saying, you know, if we got the every building in the world, their, their colour was red. Mm. Uh, if we got every major building in the world lit up in red and white on a certain day in March, if we got to take over the White House for a day and got the President of the United States holding our product, showing the world, we would pay hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions for that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 the house, the previous house or the current house in, in DC seemed fine to me. Uh, I think a lot of the work that the MCs do is outside the house. Look, I, I, it, it does. The swimming pool was the bit that got me a bit. I thought, <laughs> eh, perhaps it's going a little bit over the edge. And the same with that does. Playing Marco Polo with yeah. <laughs> But do we need to have a, a place in Washington that we can, you know, showcase to the world? Absolutely we do. But mm. not with a swimming pool, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so we have um, a text in from a listener. Soft power isn't cheap. Brian in Dublin uh, is in with that one and you're certainly right about that and we'll, we'll look in more at the newspapers after the break. If you want to get in contact with us you can text us on 53106 or, or WhatsApp 087 1400 So we're going to take a short break. Aideen Fergal and Brianna will be staying with me as we pass through some more of the stories from this morning's newspapers. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. I'm Andy Johnston in for Anton Savage this morning. I'm still joined here in studio by Fergal O'Rourke who's recently retired as managing partner of PwC. Brianna Parkins, journalist and columnist with the Irish Times and Aideen Finnegan, podcast producer with the Irish Times. So Brianna, we're going to turn to thankfully a Christmas story here. (laughs) Waterford crowned City of Christmas by Sam Lawley. What does it say? Um, yeah, I can't believe our, our own little Waterford has taken out European uh, city, the best European city for Christmas this year. Um, it's beaten out like, you know, the traditional ones, you think like Vienna, Prague, you think, you know, the, the lovely snow-covered fir tree Christmas markets. No, Waterford's taking out with, it's, it's, it's I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this, is it Winterzel? 
Someone from Waterford might text in. Um, they have their own festival that's been attracting visitors from all around the world, apparently. And yeah, it's the new hub of Christmas. That's brilliant. It's a great achievement for them, isn't it, Fergal? Yeah, we didn't see how uh, they were selected. Was it one of these ones where no you motivate and, and get the vote out early? Voting Mac Voting. vote face. They did have, um, they, there was, uh, because it's supported by the European Parliament, one of the Polish chairs on this panel said they were impressed with the submission that it had a strong commitment to its heritage as a hallmark of identity and it represented a jewel of Christmas harmony and aesthetics. But the pictures look amazing, yeah. don't they? Good on them. They do I mean the, the I don't know how familiar people are with Waterford City, but the Apple Market is this beautiful plaza that they have. Do you ever hear the expression Ireland would be a great great country if you could only roof it? Yes, it's actually yeah. put a roof on it. You know, there's a, a beautiful <laughs> canopy that's reflective. So when you look up, you know, you can see it's 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 fantastic. It's really a fantastic um example of public realm. And uh, I mean the pictures look beautiful. Yeah, they look amazing. I mean I have to say in recent years, um the amount of effort that small towns and communities put into making the streets look good for yeah. Christmas. I think since COVID actually mm-hmm. um, and like a couple of weeks ago we were we were all talking about Dublin and you know people not coming into the city because of the riots and people being fearful. I mean I was in town last week and it was buzzing again so mm-hmm. Long may that continue. What about Athlone? Um, well, I'll have to check how it did in the voting. But in fairness <laughs> to Waterford, I have noticed in the last couple of years, they have been pushing the 15-minute city, the beaches, the amenities. Going back two or three years, the, the local council and the local community really seem to have, this seems to be the latest uh, win for them, but it's not something that's come out of nowhere. They've been doing this for the last couple of years. That's right, yeah. And I think that cycle way that they have yeah. had has brought a huge amount of attention. So, as you say, Brianna, good on them. Um, so, any looking for a place to go over Christmas it's the city of Waterford and it is now the European city of Christmas 2024 even though it should be 2023 probably yeah. is it yeah mm-hmm. okay and um, now we're going to turn to another story that's been in the newspapers all week <laughs> Like I, this story, I don't know. If you could have an Irish story, this is it. Fergal, it's the JP McManus to donate a million euro to every GA county board in the country. Well, fair dues to him. Uh, and uh, it has, uh, you know, like a million euro for county boards would be a huge uh, boost. But I saw a headline like the very next day was like, oh, a million euro causes headache for Well, uh, it was very funny. I mean, it, there's a lot in, if, if if you want to read from the sporting perspective, you've got Joe Brawley kind of giving out that he's a tax exile and shouldn't be allowed to pick and choose. You've got Colm O'Rourke saying we should be saying thanks. But to your point where 90% of it is positive in the uh, Michael Foley's article in the Sunday Times, he quotes an unnamed county official saying, this is a nightmare for county <laughs> boards. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, all the public at large now see is that every county got a million. So when we go fundraising to support our development activity next spring they'll turn around and say she got a million euro already <laughs> and I thought only in Ireland <laughs> could yeah. somebody make a bad news story it's absolutely superb I, 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 you know and for a lot of clubs uh, particularly smaller counties it'll be absolutely brilliant the fact that it has to be equally divided between ladies football camogie mm. uh, men's football and hurling uh, I'd say there are a lot of other kind of sports that really would have loved this yes. soccer rugby cricket yeah. you know squash um, it, it's but it, it it's really positive and it's there there will be I can imagine the phone calls ringing up and down to, to Crow Park saying how are we doing if we've come up with a formula what's the best practice but it will cause consternation but in fairness it's it's fantastic and Aideen for like ladies football clubs and camogie and stuff this is going to be a huge boost isn't it hopefully I mean the Sunday Times is also um, discussing about the arguments that have already started so issues have arisen with like do clubs with hurling and football teams operating independently 
under one name get a double payment and you know how do they they split it up with the the, the football and camogie units um, so you know because some clubs have a one club model so they'll be forced to split one payment across four sports compared with the other clubs who haven't followed that model so you would hope it would give a much needed boost to the ladies uh, GAA but I guess we will see an awful lot of scrapping over and I don't mean that in a pejorative sexist term I'm, I, the fellas are just as capable of scrapping <laughs> over it over the money I as- think this has the makings of a great kind of board game you know like <laughs> Monopoly but you know, it, you know you could have the tax exile status and then you could have like go around the board and see if a small little club with only three ladies GA teams gets as much as like I, I just I, I think, think it's more like the field where you have a film where, where that, yeah. you know <laughs> the actual field the actual field that would be the, the name of the Netflix series <laughs> very good yeah but look as you say it is it's a great story fair play to him um, it's great for GA he's obviously putting his money where his mouth is mm-hmm. and he wants to support the communities and yeah they're they're an amazing organisation so good for him and good for them um, now, speaking of um, men with money, we're going to turn to Mark Zuckerberg now because um, Aideen, he's planning his own little lavish retreat. Yes, so this is a piece in the Sunday Independent today that he's building a bunker on his $100 million Hawaiian ranch. Um, it will have 30 bedrooms, 30 bathrooms, 11 tree houses in a nearby woodland area, which I find very interesting, and will be joined together by a series of rope bridges so he will not have to descend to move between them. Um, and the compound will be spanned 57,000 square feet with all the, you know, the, um, you know, industrial sized everything. This sort of slots into uh, a running theme that the, the tech billionaires, the tech bros are uh, building a bunker for the uh, inevitable apocalypse. Yeah. Now, apocalypse doesn't mean, you know, in a religious sense, we're talking about climate change, really. Um, you know, you hear about um, tech billionaires trying to decide where, which place on earth will be least affected by the climate crisis? Will it be Alaska or will it be New Zealand? Sorry, um, where did you say this place is? Is it Hawaii? Oh, sorry, it is It's it is in Hawaii. Hawaii. So the climate change thing is interesting. Obviously, Hawaii yeah. is an archipelago. So I wouldn't imagine that, you know, a, a bunker... You're shaking your head there, Brianna. You don't yeah. agree? It's what? a bit low-lying. Yes, yeah, it is. I'd be a bit yeah. worried about thought this out. Well, it's interesting because uh, what reminded me of the story is uh, I, I was surfing Netflix the other night and there's a film. I thought you were going to say you were surfing in Hawaii. No, no. <laughs> surfing Netflix and there's a movie now which is directed by Barack and Michelle Obama called I Leave s- the World Behind. Yes, and yes. it's uh, with uh, Julia Roberts, Mar- Marshalla Ali, Kevin Bacon, Ethan Hawke. But part of the story without being a spoiler for it, there's this big bunker, uh, survival bunker uh, and uh, the story is basically a, a, a cyber attack in America and what's really behind it and all this. But there does seem to be a trend, all right, of those with money are heading where they think it'll be safe, whether it's climate change or whether it's civil war or whatever. Uh, but this movie kind of really accentuates this. The it end was, of the world is coming. Maybe climate of, change, maybe politics, but you've got to have your bunker and your, your, your battery radio and your water and your torches <laughs> and everything else. You it know? was kind of spooky, wasn't it? It was. It was a very good film. Actually, I went in a bit cynical thinking, oh, you know, but actually it was quite an entertaining film. You've sold me on that. I think (laughs) it's less about bunkers and more about them becoming Bond villains. If you kind of Mm. think of it that way, every Bond villain had a lair and all these tech billionaires now have undercover (laughs) underground bunkers. My favourite detail in the story was that all the people working on the construction have to sign NDAs. But one of the details they printed was there's going to be a secret room and it's going to be a fake panel in the library. So <laughs> in every murder mystery is like you pull out a book. It's always a fake book. Yeah. Like, come on, you've made them sign NDAs and now we know how to get to your bunker anyway.
anyway. Yeah. Just and like Cluedo, you know. <laughs> There's a theme here. Yeah, so I also saw there's only 78,000 people who live on the island anyway yeah. and now the place never had any traffic, never yeah. had any problems. So he's bringing his own little climate crisis to one island. They're not yeah. too happy about it. And why isn't he in the metaverse anyway? Yeah. Go, why to, we, go build your bunker there. Zach. Actually, why aren't we all in the metaverse? <laughs> this time last year, we were not supposed to be living yeah. in the metaverse exactly. for this Christmas. How much faith has he in it, really? <sighs> anyway, speaking of metaverse, and um, we're on to Taylor, Taylornomics, is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, so this is the phenomena that is um, Taylor Swift. And you recall earlier in the year, she went to Amsterdam or someplace and she caused a spike mm. in their inflation rate. Brianna, have you had a look at this for us? Yeah, it was actually, it was Beyonce. It was Beyonce, sorry. In, in the Swedish inflation rate. It was it was dropping and they were getting hotels and, and restaurants um, back to normal. And then Beyonce came to town, started off her world tour there um, and then caused a, a little spike there. But my favourite thing about this is this is a book from a University of Kansas economics professor and she's called it Swiftonomics, but she also looks at Beyonce too. And it looks about women's spending within the economy. And she reckons between the two of them, they've added a 10 billion, with a B, boost to the American economy. And it isn't just the, the, the sales tickets. It isn't even hotels and restaurants. It's all the secondary services. So she's saying that in Chicago on um, Taylor Swift's tour date, there was a 5 to 20% boost across loads of sectors, but one of them was beauty services okay. and retail. And if you're looking at the Ares, um, the Ares concert, the 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 culture around it is that you make your own heiress outfit. So all these You make women, your own what? Yeah, heiress. Okay, yeah. your name. So you make your own outfit. You go as your, your favorite tailor, basically. And people are spending thousands on customized outfits on Etsy, but also they're doing things like buying their own crafts. Do you remember the, the feather boa shortage that yes, happened yeah. when Harry Styles <laughs> came to town? It affected me greatly. <laughs> <laughs> the great feather boa shortage <laughs> of 2023. <laughs> So you can see how much this is impacting the economy as a whole. And it's really, I love this style of economics, to be honest. I love it when it's Yeah, no, it's a fascinating thing to look at. You've girls in the house, anybody? And one girl, yeah, we're going to Taylor Swift when she comes uh, in 2024. And you managed to get the tickets because yeah, that was an epic uh, yeah. adventure in but, itself. Uh, I know, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of keen to see it myself as a kind of cultural phenomenon. I mean, like, if you think back you know, the Beatles and the Stones and all this. She is truly an incredible economic powerhouse. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's uh, time person of the year, the first entertainer to be it in, since 1927, since it started off. I mean, it, it, it'll be interesting to see a local variation of this economics. I suspect hotel prices in Dublin will yeah. go through the roof. Yeah, I absolutely. You know. we, saw gal- well, we saw accusations of gouging, didn't yeah. we, earlier in the year? And think of all those scars you'll be able to buy on the way to the Aviva Stadium with Taylor Swift on them and everything. That'll be a huge boon for the local economy. Well, according to the Daily uh, the Mail on Sunday, she saved the US from recession. So you never know, maybe she'll... Yeah, it was line ball at one point there for one quarter and they, they gave her the point note, something that kept them above the line. Aideen, like she's actually quite a powerful person, isn't she? All joking aside, Hugely. like from the economics aside. Of it. And also she's got a bit of steel about her. Absolutely. She took on the... the Yeah, she re-recorded her first six albums because her back catalogue was sold to Scooter Brown. Brown? Brown? I never know how to pronounce it. it. Um, Who uh, is just a Bieber's manager uh, amongst others. And uh, she doesn't like him. And she did not want uh, him to lord it over her and and her rights. So she recorded publishing rights, obviously. You know, there's mechanical rights and publishing rights. So she recorded her entire back catalogue again so that she could use them without ever having to pay him a cent. Mm. And it's done really well. Absolutely. And the other phenomenon is she's dating this Kansas City Chief player now, Travis 
Kelsey. Kelsey. Uh, I'm uh, so surprised at about how much you know about celebrity culture. It's a renaissance man. But but it is incredible because American football is actually gaining from this this crossover now between popular culture and American football, which hadn't really been there. The the two audiences were slightly... uh, Now you've got Taylor Swift fans interested in American football, American football fans interested in Taylor Swift. I mean, just the marketeers are salivating over there over this. It was a genius move. And I'm not even a Swifty. But I do love looking at the sort of industry side of Hollywood and her publicist, Tree Payne, is one of the mm. most like powerhouse PR strategists up there with Chris Jenner mm. in terms of making moves. And yeah, this, the, the Kelsey family have their own podcast. They also have their own Netflix documentary and it has catapulted uh, Travis, who was, he was a star player, but it has really put him on the map. And there was sort of like, oh, is this a, a showmance? Is this real? Because it was so well orchestrated and released. But I think, yeah, Taylor is back. Yeah. And it's like back to those days in Hollywood where they put these couples together um, and they helped each other in terms of brand and stuff. But yeah, no, she, she's a she's a phenomenon and a great story. And we look forward to her coming here next year. Look, I'm going to end today where I started, which is the front page of the Irish Mail on Sunday. And it's this picture, which I think is amazing of this is the, the brave man. Um, the Brazilian food delivery driver, I, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Caio Benico, who um, took on that attacker in Dublin city centre a couple of weeks ago and probably saved a number of lives. There was a GoFundMe uh, page set up to try and help him um, and probably one of the, the best kind of feel-good stories in the paper today. He has arrived home to his family and his young son there wearing an Ireland jersey it's a lovely story, Aideen, isn't it? It really is. Um, he went home on a one-way ticket and you think, oh, that means he's gone home. Maybe what, what happened? No, he's plans to come back. It's just there was so much money raised through that GoFundMe um, uh, pot. I think it was three hundred, oh, nearly €350,000. He can afford to pay one way and decide when he's coming home. He wants an extended break with his family. Apparently, two years ago, he had to leave um, Brazil because he lost everything when his restaurant burned to the ground. Yeah, yeah. So, And his father had died and he was sort of destitute. So... His family is back there. He came over here to try and provide for them. So he's taking an extended break with him. And, I know, it's yeah. lovely. So look, before I let you all go, um, I want to, Virgil, end up with you, please, if I can. So you're doing a podcast at the moment in your in your post-PWC. Well, uh, helping out uh, Stuart Lancaster, the nice. uh, former Leinster coach, called me and uh, I kind of got to know Stuart over the last couple of years and he's wanted to do a podcast about leadership and his move to Paris. He's now the head coach in Racing. And he wanted me to kind of interview him, do it and share my own experiences. So we've done three or four, we've done three and the fourth one will drop now in the next couple of weeks. But uh, really interesting. He's uh, he's doing really well over there and uh, but trying to learn a new language and, and perform his profession through a language which is not his first language. Uh, he, he's finding it difficult. But it's really interesting. And of course, I love sport and I love rugby in particular. Well, so what a nice it's, combination. It's really, You're enjoying it. I'm, That's I'm great. Enjoying it. And Aideen, like the world of podcasts, we saw today in the papers as well. Uh, Matt Cooper and Ivan Yates coming back with something for, for the next election, which I can't wait to listen to that. Yeah. Um, so it's it's really big at the it's, minute. It's huge. It? I remember a meme going around Twitter at the end of 2019 and it was like, oh, this is the year everyone started a podcast. 
but well and truly I mean this is it's um, it, the penetration of podcasts now is, is in the English speaking part of the world is huge and then we still have the rest of the world to go you know Spanish speaking mm. Hindi what have you it's it's this, it's a juggernaut Well it, now Brianna that's something for you for 2024 you're going to have to look at Listen <laughs> folks I'm afraid that we have run out of time um, and that's all that we have time for but I really want to thank my panellists today Fergal O'Rourke who recently retired as managing partner is now involved in a podcast uh, Brianna Parkins journalist and columnist with the Irish Times and Aideen Finnegan podcast producer with the Irish Times. The Anton Savage Show. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday mornings from 10. On News Talk.